Let's pray, please. So Father, I really do, I, I covet absolutely otherworldly sovereign will of yours to manifest itself in helping me teach, unfold this morning the meaning, the purpose, and the relevance of your holy kingdom in our midst. In the name of Jesus. Amen. My intention this morning, in this fourth week on the kingdom of God, I I think in a sense you can say it's a whole sermon of just application. Because we have been a few weeks saying, look back at this 2,000-year-old text, recording what happened. When you do read your Bible, you must always have that part of what's in your mind if you want to get the intended meaning. Or you may think, God says something and say He says something. He doesn't mean whatsoever because you brought only your present day ideas into it and read it into it. It's not holiness. It's abusiveness. But So we have been in the text asking what it was going on when the kingdom of God came in Jesus. What did it mean then? How were they to understand it? And thus, how are we to understand its original intent? And so this morning, we want to say, because of what we have seen, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God came. That kingdom of God has not left. The kingdom of God is here. And therefore, what are the effects of that kingdom? Which are happening in 2007. That we should be seeking. Seek ye first the kingdom. What do you mean? Seek the experience of the power and the reign of God in your midst in the year 2007 at Abundant Grace Community Church. That's where I'm going. We just rehashed last three weeks in a minute. We have seen that in the coming of Jesus, the kingdom came. And that the New Testament sees the history of the world in two ages. This present age, with its sin, evil, Satan, demons, etc. And then, the age to come, with its perfection, perfect righteousness, no more Satan, no more sickness, etc. And we have seen that the mystery of the kingdom in coming with Jesus was that the age to come has come and intersected with this present evil age. In a sense, the future, the age to come, has already begun. Yet, the present evil age has not ceased. It's still here. In other words, so whether you lived in A.D. 50 with Paul, or whether we live today, we as Christians do not live between the ages as if there were the present evil age that was stopped and now we're in between because the future 
kingdom of God, which in a sense is not come yet, hasn't begun yet. We don't live in between the ages. We live in both times. We live in both ages in a sense. That's what we've seen. There is this tension. Results of that are, even though we know that Christ has already purchased absolute, perfect, eternal healing physically, yet, right now, while dwelling in this world, during this present age, we still get sick and you will die. We have already passed from death to life, the New Testament says. Yet, we will die. We have already received the sanctifying, righteousness-producing person of the Holy Spirit of God as a down payment of our future inheritance. Yes, but we are in a war against our own sinful nature Every day. We have already been acquitted of all of our sins if you're a Christian. Absolutely. Yet, when you sin, you are to ask for forgiveness again for that sin. These are results of what we have seen theologically in the New Testament concerning the kingdom of God. Just that last one. I'm telling you why I say it that way. Don't take it that way. Some of you know me and you know my relationship with some people with a particular teaching that went around in churches and, in my opinion, messed a lot of Christian people up. Where, since you have already been forgiven of your sins in Christ, you asked for forgiveness, you came to Him, you should never, ever, ever, ever again, in prayer, ask God to forgive you. But it's not biblical. It doesn't understand the tension. And it doesn't understand 1 John, if we confess our sins again and again. There's a dynamic and a tension going on. Your sins are absolutely, if you're a Christian, you can know in the future on Judgment Day, your sins have been put away. And the tension is, you're not there yet. And you will sin tomorrow. And part of the sanctifying work is to, God, forgive me. And that's a grace and that's the tension we live in. We have already become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yet, we still await to inherit our future kingdom in heaven. This is what we have seen. And so now, what about it? What does it mean for us today? How is the kingdom of God present in its manifestations? In other words, if the kingdom of God is here, and it's not just words, but it came and things happened with Jesus, happened with the early church, what blessings, manifestations of the kingdom should we expect today? And to what extent, greater or lesser, etc. And so, a number of things. There are probably a lot more, but just they're right there in the New Testament, I think. We go to Jesus, the kingdom comes, and what did that mean? First, it meant this the kingdom of God comes 
And what that means is that there is an authority and a power to heal physically sick human beings. Turn to Luke chapter 10, reading verses 8 to 9. Jesus said, Whenever you enter... Now listen. He's talking not to Himself, the King, the Messiah... He's talking to His disciples. Not just the twelve. There's seventy followers here. And He says now, wherever you go, or whenever you enter a town, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice the connection between the coming of the kingdom and healing the sick. Go, heal the sick, and say, the kingdom of God has come to you. Directly related. In Jesus' own ministry, healing sick people was an extremely important part of His earthly ministry. He preached the kingdom of God and He healed the sick time and time and time and time again. A great summary verse to cover that would be Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That, that's an amazing statement. I mean, it's either a lie or it's an amazing historical event. He was healing them when they came to him. All of them. He didn't go, oh shoot, <laughs> sorry, that one's too tough. And for Jesus, it wasn't, again, it, this occasional thing in his ministry. Healing the sick was a large part of his two and a half, three, three and a half year earthly ministry. He preached the kingdom and He healed people who were in much pain or dying. So, one thing we see then is that with the arrival of the kingdom of God, there is a ministry, a power, and authority to overcome terrible physical Painful misery. We have seen something deeper than that in the last couple of weeks, though, too, theologically. And that is, we don't live in the future kingdom of God that is still not yet. We don't live on the other side of the second coming. We don't live in that time when. All believers will be resurrected, not merely brought back to physical life, but with a resurrected spiritual slash physical new form of physicality and life and body as Jesus has right now, which will never again get cancer, get sick, get the headache or the toothache or any other small or big thing. We live now and thus in this present age it is not true that everybody will be healed. 
It's not true that God wants to heal everybody. But sickness and suffering and getting your head beat in, that's a physical thing because of the Gospel and death are part of this age. Having said that, I think part of the reality of the presence, now, not yet, the presence of the kingdom means that we believers ought to continue to seek the kingdom of God in this aspect. God, would you use me? Are you guiding me to use me to seek to love other believers and then unbelievers by using me through me with the gifts of healing? Would you, are you using me to be a person who would lay hands on another who is ailing and be sick and just somehow it works stronger in me than maybe another that that person, whoo, it's gone? That you would heal them? I, I say that just because I can't get by the reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll just jump around verse 7, verse 9. To each, and this is not talking to the twelve or the apostles. This is talking to a bunch of sinful, messed up Corinthian people. To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. That's why I say love. Manifestation to one person, not to heal you, but to heal another. What kind of manifestations? Well, one of them is that to one is given the gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Now, I'm just going to stop there and an appeal where I made a larger argument why I disagree with brothers in the Lord, leaders in the Lord who have come to a cessationist view of the gifts of the Spirit revealed in chapter 12 and, verse, and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to say, go to the internet, go click, click, I can say this now. That means if you don't know how to use it, get to know how to use it. Go click, click, click and in the Holy Spirit series on our website, probably where it says gifts of the Spirit, somewhere in those two or three sermons when I dealt with them, I gave a, a, a larger argument of why I just don't think... I, I can read these texts and their arguments why the manifestations of these type of gifts have ceased. I, did just, I don't buy their arguments and it's there. Let me just make two clarifying points though. In the ministry of Jesus where they would argue that His ministry as the Messiah, as God in human flesh, and bringing the kingdom and the necessity of signs in it was unique. And that the twelve who are Christians, but they're not merely Christians, they are apostles. They were the revelatory spokespeople. There has never been any other apostles since they died out, including Paul. It is a special office, came with special signs and manifestations. They're not the norm. That's the argument. I fully agree with them. Even saying that, though, 1 Corinthians doesn't, it seems to be a different thing. Probably ain't going to be as strong. But evidently there are some who may be sovereignly used by God with the gifts of healing. So, unique, yes. 
But the kingdom of God is here. Seek it. Not just for yourself. Oh, you have to be happy in God. But for the sake of others. Starting with the gifts of healing. Or the gift of encouragement. Or the gift of prophecy. Or the gift of prayer. You didn't list every gift there is. Whatever it is you find your hand to do, do it. Secondly, with the presence of the kingdom, with the coming of the kingdom, that kingdom, that authority rule of God in that realm overcomes physical death. When Jesus sent out the twelve, it says in Matthew 10, verse 7 to 8, that, quote, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. I mean, I want to open my Bible because that's mind-boggling. Sometimes we just go over it as religious talk. But I, is this inspired? Was it really what the historical Jesus said to the twelve, not just for him, his own ministry? They were to preach the kingdom. And part of the sign that the kingdom was present in their preaching as disciples of Jesus was that there would be human beings that had died. Their heart has ceased. They might even be lying in a coffin, which means it had to be at least probably a day or two or three in the city of Nain. And that a power of the kingdom would cause that boy to come back to life. So at least when the kingdom of God comes, there's something about it that can, does, in part, confront physical death itself. But when we open up the New Testament, just, just, just so think this way too, you open it up. And there are only three times, whether or what, we don't know, but we do know this, comparatively, there's only three recordings of Jesus ever causing a dead person to come back to life in his ministry. Just three. In the book of Acts, with the apostles, there are only two. Contrast that with the way the New Testament puts it in Jesus' ministry with the hundreds, if thousands most likely, of physical healing. People who are alive have ailments and are healed and not dead. Why? Is it, do you think it's merely because he couldn't get himself prayed, prayed up enough to cause more people or thousands of people to be raised from the dead? <coughs> I, I don't think that's it. I, try this one. It seems to be that... Oh, there's a, here's, a, here's a deduction I would draw from it. That when the kingdom has come, and it's, it, it's not here fully, it's here and it's, it's present and it's manifesting future things, but only in part that God somehow sovereignly chooses to have people in this present age experience aspects of the future kingdom, some like physical healing, more than raising people from the dead. And we can go and just go down the line with all kinds of other manifestations. More so, I, I think that that would be one. Maybe the other might be something like this. 
it's not necessarily a huge blessing to die twice. <laughs> uh, seriously, people die, many people die very, very hard. So, if Jesus were to go around all over, how many people died over here? There are, well, in this region, there's 13 people that died this week. Okay, and do that, and do that for three years. But you've got to understand, we live in this present evil age. And the taste that was happening by being a sign that He was the One was that there is a resurrection. You remember? Lazarus was dead. You're going to see that I am the resurrection in the life. And this is a, a sign of that. Well, the way that I am going to use the word resurrection right now in front of you to raise Lazarus from the dead or the boy in the city of Nain is not the resurrection. That's not a new form of life. It's not the new body that we still anticipate at the second coming of Christ. It was, in a sense, a bringing back to resuscitation to mortal life, which means every person Jesus or the apostles ever raised from the dead got sick again if they didn't just get run over by a horse and die. And died. So, but, here, but nevertheless, confront it. It's in your text. Preach the kingdom and raise the dead. Overall, why? <coughs> As Lazarus, I'm the resurrection of life. These in a, are a foretaste of the greater realities that await the consummation of the kingdom. Healing is only just a taste. If you got healed by God miraculously, you're still going to die. It's just postponed. But it comes into this world as a taste of the promise of the consummated kingdom. I just went to one of the 4,000 shelves in my study and many books that I read through and bought <coughs> my early Christianity... 25 years ago. <coughs> See, I need healing right here. I picked one up. <coughs> I used to go to conferences like this. I read all this kind of stuff. Let me just read it and see what kind of comment comes out of me. I open up the book. It's, this one is titled, I don't want to give a name, it's titled, How to Live and Not Die. Quote, I'm going to do my best to demolish to break into a million pieces and to drive out by God's power every disease in any person who reads this book. God doesn't want you to have any diseases. He wants you to be free totally and receive His miracle working power. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same principles that are taught in this book regarding disease can be applied to all critical cases, financial, emotional, social, spiritual, or physical. <coughs> he's sincere, and he's wrong. And thus, that wrongness of not understanding this present evil age, taking text of Scripture to make those kind of points out of context, which he's sincere about is and has been devastatingly dangerous to many people. 
I used to go to conferences, because he's very honest, because he just takes the way he would speak, and it's, you know, gets formed into a little book. And there will always be people there with tumors on their brain, and they're dying. And they want to be well. And of course, 99.999% of them go ahead and die. Anyway, but not only that, if you take the truth that the kingdom of God has come and God does heal, and He might do it within the church because that believer prayed for that believer. And it might not just be a headache healing, which when you've got a headache, it doesn't matter. It's huge. It might be cancer. It might be through doctors and prayer, but that person lived because of prayer. You'll find it out more clearly in the age to come that it wasn't merely medical. But when you teach people, no, here's the Gospel. God, His will is, I want you healed, therefore something's preventing it, and the answer is, you are you have just turned the gospel into the non-gospel and you're very close to really butchering it by causing people to think this is what Christianity is about. I'm going to get richer. I'll be well. I can get rid of the disease. And that's called idolatry. Not the gospel. The gospel is you get God. And only those who are saved by the Gospel is because the Holy Spirit has come within them and caused them to finally come to a place which they could not on their own. Yes, I want God to delight in Him forever. And it is the Gospel that has removed all the barriers so that that could actually happen. The point is, sickness and death were not abolished with the coming of Jesus for this present age. His healings and raisings from the dead were signs that in the final consummation they will be absolutely and perfectly abolished. Click that thing off. Just click the ticker if you're cold. The presence, another third thing, the presence of the kingdom of God overcomes demonic oppression and it brings deliverance. Luke chapter 11 verse 20. But it, Jesus said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then, logical deduction, that's how this is worded, then know the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, you just turn the logic around. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. Therefore, that means I, the king, will cast out demons. So the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus brings into the open the conflict with the rule, the reign of God, and the demonic domain or the demonic kingdom of Satan and demons. Now, when you pick up your Bible and you look at the vast majority of it, called the Old Testament, there are 39 books there. They were completed hundreds of years before Christ came and brought the coming of the kingdom. But out of those 39 books, only five of them even mention Satan. 
And nowhere in the Old Testament do you see kings or priests or prophets casting out demons. It isn't there. But then Jesus comes and it just kaboom! Right in the open. From the beginning of I'm baptized and then the Spirit of God led him off into the wilderness to confront Satan. And then throughout his ministry, constantly confronting on behalf of people being demonized and demon oppressed, casting out demons. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus called to Him the twelve disciples and He gave to them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out of people. So it's clear with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God brings into the open this spiritual conflict. In other words, it's not as if demons didn't exist before Jesus because you don't see them floating around in the Old Testament. It's what's going on now in this period of history with the coming of Christ is that the behind the scenes and visible influences of demons producing the idolatry in the Old Testament is now just brought smack out into the open. It wasn't time to do so before then. And also we know Jesus then gives to His disciples. That means all believers. We see it through Paul in the book of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God. You have a battle and a war against demonic unseen forces and influences put on the armor. You know, and I'm going to tell you, I, I, I didn't have this, I'm just going to, okay, Joe, make it short, ten seconds. One of the greatest battles against Satan is to understand, I don't mean merely read, understand the theology laid out in the Bible. Renew your mind in 2 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about our ministry is casting down everything that rises up against the knowledge of God, those type of strongholds that he's battling against, demonic philosophies and influences, has to do with people hearing and letting it go through their mind and their heart, loving the truth that changes their worldview, how they think, how they pray, how they deal with stuff. Not merely, Satan be gone, demon leave me. I'm not going to say because of the Word of God and because of prayer and because you're dealing privately with a particular temptation that it's not right or good for you to say and speak it out against a demonic influence. Go for it. But it includes a whole panorama of Christian life and sanctification and the Word of God in you. Fourth thing, that the kingdom of God in its present form now brings. And oh, don't, this is so marvelous. And this is 
if I could say, more important and utterly miraculous. And that is the kingdom of God brings about a removal of rebellion and a conversion to Christ. Jesus made this clear when He said, nobody, meaning nobody, can enter the kingdom of God unless they be converted. Something change in them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, He said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, that's the conversion, unless you turn and become, means you weren't before like that, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so, what's the, what is the power that can cause that to happen in us hard, independent, not childlike, rebellious, stubborn people into childlike humility and dependence and you have the words of life. What power could do that? The answer in the New Testament is the power of the kingdom itself is what produces the conversion which allows you to enter the kingdom. Remember last week in the parables in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the fishing net implies this. And I mean, what do I mean? Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and it, get it gathered it. Gathered. The net is the subject of the verb gathered. The net gathered all kinds of fish. The kingdom is the net. The kingdom gathers. That unseen realm, even today, is gathering fish people. Fish don't jump into the net. They try to get out when they find that they got gathered into it. Or to say it just bluntly the way Paul did without using the implication of a, of a parable, of a story. He said in Colossians 1.13, Jesus has delivered. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's the way He says it. Don't take words lightly. He didn't say, because the kingdom is here, people are making the decision to transfer themselves out of darkness. He never says it that kind of way in the Bible. And into the kingdom. He did it. It's another one from last week. It's implied in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. Remember, he goes on to say, the Son of Man himself, Jesus, the King, is the one sowing the good seed, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. Okay, according to it, what's the implication of that parable? 
how did the sons of the kingdom get there in the world? The parable says they're in the world as sons of the kingdom because the Son of Man put them there. That's why Jesus says bluntly in the Gospel of John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless something happens to them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags them, literally. And I will raise him up on the last day. Or when the rich young ruler, remember after that terrible dealing, okay, one thing you lack, and showed where his heart really was. He left. Now listen to the discussion that Jesus had with His disciples right after that. Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, then who can be saved? They got it. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, left to himself, you see if this is not the right implication, with man, this thing about being saved, going through the eye of a needle, if you're as big as a camel, with man, this is impossible. But, with God, all things are possible. But, let me just kind of reword it, see if this is fair. With the authority and power of the kingdom, the reign and rule of God, the kingdom which is here, gathering all things are possible. Or in other words, many will be saved. Because man is not left to themselves in this issue. Being converted and entering the kingdom of God, Jesus, I think, is very clear, is not merely a work of man. It's impossible unless God. And that's the power of the kingdom. If you are a believer, you have had that change, conversion, Something radical happened. Well, some people don't feel it as radical as others because it happened early in their life by God's mercy. Don't get me wrong here. The evidence is whether you love the king, and if you do, it's not because you were born that way. It is because you were born, again, by the power of the kingdom that way. 
God can change people and bring about the new birth and the person coming into the kingdom. Luke 12.32, just listen. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure. He delights to give you the kingdom. Matthew 13.11, To you it has been given to know. Let me just I remember my first class in seminary. New Testament theology, I had to do a paper, I had to pick a passage from the Gospels, and it blew my mind. I, I knew no one in my Christian life for 13 years that ever dealt honestly with text like the one that I had to do my paper on. And it had to do with Jesus, and the reason I speak in parables, so these people just, there's no way they have a clue what I'm talking about. And I, 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 I at first tried to say, hey, somehow I can't mean what he's talking about. But, and I wasn't as converted to see as clearly what he was talking about then than as I am now. I certainly wasn't at all. I'm in a very different place. It is those type of passages of Scripture that finally brought me to the place. But I did come to the conclusion, I don't really know what he means, but I do know what he said. That he on purpose did not and had no purpose for some people to have a clue what he's talking about. Sorry. Now, but here he says, but to you, my disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. See, right before he said to these others, it's not given to them. The reason they don't know and haven't seen the kingdom that causes them to enter it and their life be changed is because God didn't give it to them. Matthew 16, verse 17 Peter, awesome answer. You got it, didn't you, Peter? You've been with me these number of months, couple of years. You got it. Yeah, I get it. You're, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You got it, Peter. The reason you got it is because you heard me, Jesus in human flesh, keep insinuating such a thing. You got it from a book. He said, no, the reason you're right, Peter, is that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But along with your seeing, along with your hearing the gospel that I'm preaching, along with that, what happened, Peter, is my Father revealed it to you. It is the power and the authority and the presence and the right of the King and of the presence of the kingdom to overcome rebellion. That means unbelief. To overcome rebellion in the human heart and bring conversion to Jesus Christ. Now, just before I leave this one point, I want to turn briefly away from the Gospels to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and hear Paul say the same thing, just using different words. He's not going to use the word kingdom here, but this is the work and the power of the kingdom in the words Paul is using. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, let me just start for a minute, 
Remember, we have seen over the previous weeks, Paul is preaching the kingdom. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He does use the term, and it's, it's used in Acts when, through Paul's mouth, and he does use it sometimes in his epistle. He's preaching the kingdom. But you can say the same thing in different words. That's, that's what language is about. That's what under, how understanding comes. And Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, and therefore it pleased, God, through the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. And now he explains. For Jews, here's the thing, there are two people in the world, there are Jews, and there are everybody else in the context Paul's using here. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. That's the entire earth. He's going to use substitute Gentile again, okay? He, by Greeks here, he doesn't mean the rest of them. The entire world is looking for what we as Christians don't have. It's called the gospel. It's, it's one reason why spending an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what unbelievers want so you can track them to your church could be kind of dangerous. You might subtly be changing the message. But he says, Jews seek for signs, Greeks wisdom, but we don't offer that. That's what he's going to say. Listen, but what, Paul? But we preach, we proclaim, we make a proclamation about truth. We proclaim Christ crucified. You've got to hear it the way Paul means it there because, you know, 2,000 years of Christian history, crosses, we got them around our necks and on churches. And this is so, no. But what we do, they want wisdom. We want to study more Aristotle and Plato. And want, here's a new way of living and this works for me or, or the religious way we want. Signs. And he says, we preach Christ tortured I'm just trying to think, what, what are different things people do today for, in some other countries of, of, of capital punishment? Because we don't torture here, but other countries still want you to die slowly. Tortured on a rack and with razor blades until dead for 12 hours. That's what we preach. We're preaching a bloody cross. we got a message that is mind-bogglingly stupid to those who along with it are not receiving the grace of the authority of the kingdom. We live in a world, Paul says, and we have a message that God, a creator you can't see, you can induce with reason, but you can't see, but not only that, you can't induce this by yourself. He had planned for all eternity past to create a world in which sin would be in order that He may show mercy to untold gazillions, millions of people through this plan of Himself, the Eternal One, second person, becoming a human being in order to be slaughtered 
in the way that that particular culture of Roman and the Roman Empire would slaughter people. And he did it because that was a substitution for every human being born of Adam and Eve. And he says, that's what we preach! And he says, if that doesn't change you, if there's not something in response to that proclamation in your heart that changes you, you're doomed to just condemnation forever. But if it does change you, because of that Christ crucified, you will enjoy God and His mercy forever. Don't miss it. Can you become Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't miss it. That is crazy stuff. It's a crazy, otherworldly message. Another reason why it's dangerous to cause the church to become more like the world. I didn't finish reading yet, did I? Let's go back to verse 22. For Jews seek for signs, but Greeks... They search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And to that message, here's the problem. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it's foolishness. So, Paul concludes, even though Jesus died, came and died and rose again, and we preach, he concludes, no one will ever be saved. That's if he did not continue with the word but. Verse 24. But to those who are called from among both the Jews and the Greeks, to them, to every one of them, Christ, becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, Paul uses a, his own little term here, the word in English, called, Greek, kaleo, called. Obviously, Paul does not mean I, Paul, go to the new city and I go to the marketplace. Got to play. Can I preach here in the synagogue? Okay, later, and I'll preach out here. And I'm going to preach. This is what happened. God sent, as He has promised, His own Son to die for sins, and all who believe in Him will be saved. Come to Christ. He calls. He doesn't mean that. He can't mean that. He knows, and He just said, "We preach, and they don't believe." They walk away saying, that guy's crazy. This is foolish. This is stupid. Who wants it? He called them and they do not experience Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. But he uses the word because he says here, but to those who are called. Then say to some of them. To those who are called. The implication, to everyone who is called this way, to them in the hearing of the message, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Meaning this is a different call. This is the call of the King. This call is the kingdom of God present 
in the preaching of the Gospel, converting people to Christ. This is what theologians have said to understand terms that helps you, you know, write better and think better, is the effectual call. Not the general call. Not the general call of Billy Graham being on the TV saying, here's the Gospel, come, some do, some don't. With this call, it's not true that some do, some don't. If you're called, you come. It's the kind of call, I'll use an analogy, most of you know where I'm going, it's the kind of call that Jesus used outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's been dead, and he is starting to stink, and it's been three days. And he called him. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to call and wonder if he's going to hear me. The point of that, historically, with Lazarus, is clear to any, to any you know, clear-thinking reader. That when Jesus said, as Jesus, as the Christ, as the King, when He said by His authority, dead person Lazarus, come! It was His actual act of calling that caused Him to come out. And that's what happens spiritually. That is a work and an extremely glorious, miraculous work of the presence of the kingdom since Jesus came and is here today. And if you have come to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel delivered down through the ages, and Jesus, that King, and the truth of the gospel has been a treasure to you, that is the evidence that Jesus said to you, one day, somewhere, whether you pinpoint it or not, come in your whole eternity, was changed. You did not believe in the Gospel. And therefore, Jesus called you and said, come. The only reason you believe is because His call produced that grace and mercy called your faith. That is an effect of the presence of the kingdom of God in this world today. Next, don't... just Because it's easy to pass over this, but the presence of the kingdom is here. It is here to heal. It is. Do, do people get raised? I, I don't know. I, I, I like proof. I like proof for all these kind of things. Okay. I, I mean, I do like proof. I know that because I am proclaiming, there's no reason for me to believe that God isn't healing and through people and maybe even through laying on hands. It does not mean that I turn on the TV and I think that, 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 that's a legitimate ministry. I think a lot of them are lying through their teeth. and it's, A lot of it's been proved. But we can go on in our book. Here's another real precious one, though. The kingdom of God is present everywhere in the earth today in order to overcome condemnation and to bring forgiveness. Uh, I think it's five if you're counting. Condemnation and to bring forgiveness. Why? Because the great obstacle between God and and us human beings is the truth that we are guilty. 
and under just condemnation. But Jesus comes, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, and He makes statements like this. We've got to ask ourselves, well, how does that work? He says, I tell you, religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, priests, I tell you that tax collectors, the scum of your realm, and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. They're guilty. There's a barrier between them and God. And he's saying the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God. It's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who know they don't have anything in themselves to commend themselves to God or the kingdom. Those people, blessed, happy are they. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. How does that happen, though? Remember the parable? We can go in different ways. Let's just go to Jesus. Remember his parable? He says, I'll tell you what the kingdom's like. It's like this guy who gets all his debtors together. They all owe him. And there's one guy, he owes him equivalently to a million dollars. And they're all going to get thrown in debtor's prison, etc., until they can pay it back. But that guy with a million dollars knows he owes it, and he comes on his knees begging mercy. And Jesus says, Okay. The king says, Okay. You're forgiven of your debt. Totally, absolutely, go. That's why. Now, briefly, ten seconds, we know why and how the king and the power of the kingdom can actually do that to us guilty, condemnation-laden sinners because we live on this side of the cross. Okay, Serge. Six. The power and the presence of the kingdom also now presently is here, but not yet, but it's here working righteousness. In other words, overcoming sinful patterns of life in people and in communities and in cultures to the extent that the kingdom's invading and producing righteousness. Just think about the way Jesus taught us to pray. It's a basic structure. Here's what's going on and how you're addressing God. Hallowed be thy name. And then what? Your kingdom, that your rule reign come, and your will be done. That, that means something's going on. The conversion is including a change of our will in lining with His will. When the kingdom of God comes, justice is coming with it. Righteousness, that is right living, right responses, obedience to the King who is always right in Holy Scripture as He's revealed Himself in His commandments is also being produced by the kingdom. Paul said it this way in Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God, Christian, who he's talking to, for the kingdom of God, are you in it? If you are, it's what Paul said. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking legalism. It's not that, but what is it? It is righteousness. And it's peace. It's joy. 
the Holy Spirit. But the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of the presence of God, church in Rome, you're a believer, you in it. I know people can't see it physically, but you in it. This is what's going on. It's producing righteousness. He doesn't mean here the imputed righteousness of Christ before God. He means here the sanctifying work as your life is producing works of righteousness as opposed to the works of Satan or darkness. The kingdom of God changes the way people live. It brings justice and righteousness. Okay, there's six. Let's just take those six and move it to seven. I mean, just without going to the Bible first, just use logic here. Draw a conclusion from what we've seen. If it's true that the presence of the kingdom of God, even with us today, produces physical healings, new life, deliverance from demonic forces and patterns of life and habits that we hate, conversion to Christ, forgiveness of your sins forever, producing righteousness in you. And yes, even the imputed righteousness of Christ, you realize you've come into it, and it's His life, etc. If that's what the kingdom of God is doing now, I submit just logically, can we not say, therefore, the kingdom of God is producing true, deep down joy? Is, how could it be true that a person is experiencing the new birth, eye-opening work, miraculously and utterly mercifully of God the Holy Spirit so that I could see the truth of the Gospel in the sense of I understand it with my mind, but my heart loves it. And it's you, God. It's producing that. It's producing a repentant life. It's pro- the conversion to Christ is happening. And it's all now in the, in the now. But we know the not yet. But the not yet's all over. Scripture promise laid up for you in heaven. If, if that Kingdom is producing that in people today. Can it produce that in it? Not have some type, some taste of actual, real, otherworldly, kingdom producing joy. I did not say the kingdom of God eradicates pain. I did not say it gets rid of sorrow and heartache and a close friend utterly turning on you. A death of a child, or a spouse, or a loved one, or any umpteen other types of horrendous, unpleasant, and unwelcoming experiences to any rational human being. I did not say it got rid of or promises to get rid of any of that. I said it brings the power of joy in the midst of all these experiences in the now, but not yet realm. Paul makes this clear in what we just read in Romans 14, verse 17. Now here's the biblical text. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what is it, Paul? It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is joy 
in God who dwells in you called the Spirit. It's there. If it's not, and it's never there, and it has never actually been there in any seed form, it means you haven't come into the kingdom. So in light of that, I just want to turn to the Apostle Peter, look quickly to his first epistle, chapter 1, and down the road he's talking to churches all over the realm. It's a general letter going, church, bring this to all. So it's a very general thing in, in Peter's mind of the understanding of what it means to be converted to Christ, to come into the kingdom, to have these kingdom experiences. And he puts it together. I'm going I'm to jump in and start with chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 6, and read through verse 9. He says, Christian, in this, and the in this is the basic conversion, the absolute sovereign miracle of God causing you to be born again, and thus you know you have a future inheritance, which is not yet, which is laid up in heaven for you. Okay? Now that sounds good. He says, in this, you rejoice. Even though, now, for a little while, meaning, for the rest of your life. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And you have been. And there's a purpose. That's what the purpose cause means in verse 7. You have been. This is not Satan's purpose. He has a different purpose. But God is larger and in utter control of Satan. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes when it's tested by fire, your faith, like gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jimmy stuff, notice, he's just said, like I'm trying, that's why I'm saying it. I didn't, I didn't make it up. Peter's got it. Jesus says it. Paul says it. And Peter says it clear here. We're not saying that you will not experience any pain, any sorrow, any heartache, any grieving, any crying, any yuck. I don't want that in this life. Matter of fact, I promise you, you will. And God promises you, you will. Because God is sovereign and He has a purpose in it. And you live in the now. God's sovereign purpose of having a now, which is a not yet. Because I'm going to tell you, the now is brief. Peter says, for a little while. Same thing. It's brief. And God's eternal purpose of the not yet, it's going to come, and it never ends. So he says, yes, pain. Yes, crying. And now verse 8. And so, in the now, if you're in the kingdom, though you have not seen Jesus like Peter had, personally in the flesh, kind of a thing, though you have not seen Him, it's what the kingdom produces. You love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you don't. You believe in Him, though. And you, here it is, rejoice with joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter never, ever intended by what he wrote that believers down the road would feel a Christian pressure to say, yeah, everything's good. It's not what he's saying. Oh, I'm in church now, so i got to act happy. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been in atmospheres like that. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, please try to be more like that. At least right here, he's not saying that. He's just saying, this is what it is. That in the midst of life, there's a possibility of crying and grieving and breaking your neck at age 17 and still being trapped in your body for the last 30 some odd years as Johnny. And to hold in the tension of the now and the not yet, the very tension of in and of itself, I hate this, but I don't exist in the in and of itself. I don't see you, but I love you, and I am rejoicing with a joy, not just joy, but a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. That's the real joy. You can possess it even in your desperate prayers. You can possess it while you're crying. You could have... I just... I hate, I hate it. I just, see, I'm going to tell you, I hate it even in the last two weeks again. How is so-and-so doing who had lost a child so tragically? I just, I just cringe. I don't think the person should ever get over it. I don't want them to in the way that some people might think it. I want them to get on with life and get on with Christ. And there's a way to take that in reality and yet exist in the tension of also in the grieving having joy. I mean, that's not contradictory mumbo-jumbo. That's Paul sorrowful yet always Rejoicing. Why is that possible? And not only possible, why is that the essence of what a Christian is to be? Because the teaching of the kingdom of God, it has come. It's present. It's now. Producing joy. And suffering. And pain. And what's in the future is still future. It's not yet. The joy of the reality of true faith, believing the promises of the not yet, is producing, coming back into the present, producing a real tangible joy. And it's not merely linguistic, logical stuff. It is the truth of that and the Spirit of Christ in you saying, do you see it? And that produces the joy. One final effect. And especially in the context of that. And we're at various stages this month, then three months ago, differing people just within here. 
And especially when you're struggling and if you're struggling now with purpose. My life's significant. What human being doesn't ever run into that? Someone is in a coma. But when Satan, demons deceive you and you start to feel, is my life purposeless? Does it have any meaning here at all? Listen to this effect of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. John says concerning King Jesus, he, or to him, to Jesus, to the King who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and the Father. To Him be glory forevermore. Because the kingdom of God is here with the coming of Christ and has remained and is active and it is causing men and women and teenagers and children to come into it. And when the kingdom of God does that, the kingdom is producing a priesthood of believers. And just I don't I just have one simple thing. That's purpose. You just when you're struggling, is my life going away exactly? No one's life ever has. Exactly. But when you're struggling with that depression and purpose, what's going on? How many answers this day? Do you know if the kingdom has grabbed hold of you and converted you to Christ? You're a priest. That is deep, glorious, and eternal purpose. Peter said it this way in chapter 2 of his first epistle. Starting with verse 9, But you, Christian, are a chosen race. You are a royal, there's the kingdom word, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. That's why you exist. You want purpose? That's why you exist. And nobody that is a Christian is outside the opportunity to be and exist and to do this. To proclaim the excellencies of Him calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Oh yes, the world is filled with utter purposelessness. And even those intellectuals who are smart enough and clear enough to realize that, being atheist, like you would know Sartre and them, they realize, truthfully, I know, life has no meaning. Because if there's no God, it doesn't. But there is a God and we're damned, oh, or saved from damnation. And not only that, called to be priest, and now I'm going to end where I started to quote, you were not a people, but now you are, because of the King and the Kingdom, a people of God who have received mercy. You're a priest. That means the priest are those who go before 
in the Old Testament, the model for what he's talking about, before God to worship and also take the burdens, not only, but yes, of yourself, but of other people. To take their burden that isn't your burden and to go before God in prayer for it. And then priests come out, and you come out hopefully with the glory of God that you're experiencing as a priest to maybe overflow with the blessings that you're getting of the kingdom, immaterial blessings, and maybe material blessings. Maybe, can I pray for you? Maybe God will heal you. We are priests. So, as I close... The kingdom of God we have seen in these weeks has come and it is here right now. And it has overcome aimlessness, purposelessness, futility of life, and hopelessness. We are a royal priesthood. Therefore, take the last 50 minutes as subjects of the king and priest, pray, could you use me more, God? Pray. You have gifts for the common good. That means of other people I see out here within my local community of the church and beyond in the family, in the workplace. Could I actually exist today a little bit stronger for others? I can't without your mercy. Would you? Is it this gift? Is it that gift? Is it a gift that you can't even put in words and it's not there in the Bible that way? But can I be used that way to be a blessing? Could you produce more patience, long-suffering toward another that I'm having a hard time with today? We can go on and on. But the kingdom's here. God, that means seek first. Seek first the kingdom. What do I mean? Seek to find your happiness, joy, contentment within Jesus Christ and God the Father. You can't find true happiness in any gifts that He gives you. If you do, you become an idolater. Seek that King and His kingdom, meaning the realm, the power, the realm, authority, meaning now this, to operate in that and to desire for the operation of the effects of the kingdom to go through you. Oh, to see conversion happen because of your words and how God used you. To see healing happen because of how God used you. To see people receiving and understanding and getting forgiveness because God used you to announce freedom to the captives and to bring reconciliation to God. But, when all is said and done, I quote our King, don't rejoice in any of that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Father, oh great, precious, caretaking, loving, tender, stern, child-rearing, training, 
Eternal Father, continue to open our eyes. One at a time and as a community here at Abundant Grace to tapping into the work of Your Kingdom that exists all around us. May You cause us to draw near to You and in so doing we promise You